This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. I like to think I can be relied on, right? So an expectation's been set that your big homie uh, is going to come out and say something funny. And one of the good things about having expectations is to have them turned on their head from time to time. So Shag... This is a podcast about artworks made by other people. And it is a podcast about artworks made by other people that are designed to be watched and rewatched with the passage of time. And I recently got into a conversation about the value of artworks designed to stand the test of time versus the value of artworks that are by their nature ephemeral. And I sort of wanted to pick your brain on this because... Artworks that interest me include like freestyle rap, right? The raps that you say in the moment and you can never get that moment back again. Going to live performances where the way things happen, uh, that's the way it happens and it's never going to happen again. We've spoken about street art in passing before and there's something glorious, I think, to the fact that it wasn't up yesterday, it's up today and it might be gone tomorrow. And I think if we are to have a engaged two-year-long discussion, more than two-year-long discussion Mm. about our approach to art. I was wondering if, particularly when we're talking about time-based art, you had a view about the nature or the way that art built to last versus art built to shine for a moment or to occupy in our hearts and minds. Peach, the synergy of us blows me away. Now, I know there's some conjecture about whether you are my best friend or whether you're one of my best friends or whatever, and we won't get to that debate today. Oh, I got a text from Adele, just so you know, just to give you all the facts. I got a very supportive text from Adele <laughs> that is close to my heart. But we we literally talk once a week making a podcast. So, so we don't have time... Mm-hmm. To get on the same page, we just naturally mm. are. I yep. feel like there are two really important points you're raising here that I want mm. to address today. Number one, to that idea of art built to last, I think in this contemporary metaverse age, it's a term you'll be hearing pretty much for the next two, three years as mm. everybody starts to realize that's not just a future we're going towards, but it's, it's essentially where we're living right now. The way art lasts is by growing and changing and forming and sort of basically like chasing where it needs to go. And that's what Spooko has done over two years. Like, yes, ostensibly, this is a podcast that's all about exposure therapy for you. But I Mm. honestly feel like I could sit you in front of a horror film right now and you probably wouldn't actually bat an eyelid. Like, I feel like we're pretty close to you... Uh, to, you know, you know what I mean, and well, well, maybe not, maybe not, but I, but I feel like what Spooko has become 
is so much more than that. And it's that term, that gross industry term, I'm sorry to use it again, but it's happened organically. And that's the best <laughs> way for these things to happen, right? Yeah. We basically followed where we, like Spooko's one of those cartoon dogs that's smelling a pie. And, and we're, and you know, the pie's so good that it's now floating towards <laughs> that. And that's what we've done with Spooko. We're just following the pie. Have I told you our middle child does that? Like she'll come into the kitchen and be like, oh, oh, what is for dinner? It's amazing. <laughs> they have like the best sense of smell in the world and it's just magical to actually see it happen in real life. Like what is that? She's like synergy. I'm all about it. I'm also about our big homies at Heaps Normal. That's the best thing about alcohol-free beer. As Adele says, it's all of the carbs, none of the buzz. <laughs> You get both. You get the best of both worlds. It's everything to me. Tastes marginally worse. It reminds you of something that gives you yeah. a buzz. It's like, oh, nom, 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 just a bit worse than what this reminds me of. It's almost as good as the thing it's pretended to be. All of the carbs and none of the buzz. <laughs> So, so sorry, is that the tagline? Half the taste, all the carbs, <laughs> none of the buzz. No, no, this was a classic joke from Adele. I had a, it, it, it was one of those moments where she said that to me. And then I was like, yeah, maybe I don't want one. She's like, oh, fuck, have I ruined alcohol-free beer for you? And I was like, no, 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 it has its place. But yes, when you think about it that way, it becomes a far less appealing prospect. Because also it's like, if you're not going to have alcohol, would you drink beer? Like if you could, if you could taste any taste right now, would beer be the taste where you're like, mm, nom, 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 nom. I've been running from this question for so long as I've been buying these heaps normal beers. I'm like, mm, I don't need to answer that. Let's just. <laughs> anyway, heaps normal. If you ever want to send us a case, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. Like the one, like just to talk about the big dark hole I fell down. Um, I'm not sure if you've had Boilermakers shag, but that's where you have a whiskey and you have a beer with it, and so particularly like when work goes mad, like after 10, if I'm working after 10 PM, I'm allowed brown liquor. And if I'm doing casual stuff like reading a case or drafting a case note that I know I'm going to edit later uh, and it's been an insane day, I'll sometimes have a boiler maker. So I have a small whiskey and I'll have a beer with it. And so I've got into this perverse habit uh, once last week of having a small whiskey and an alcohol free beer with it to be like, yeah, man, it's, and it just struck me as this really bizarre. What scenario. an insane knot you've tied yourself into. Yeah. So I'm just not thinking about it. Fingers in my ears, zero reflection. It's basically the same as beer, and I'm not going to think about it anymore. But let's also, because I want to go back to the first question you asked of this podcast, the synergy we've created, because this is a direct lead into today's film. Mm. Because. I'm starting to realise, are films boring? <laughs> they really are. Films are boring. It's so true. And then, do you remember how we used to socialise? It was like, Shag, come around to my house. We're going to watch the movies. And 20 years ago, I'd be like, yeah, man, let's watch The Dark Knight <laughs> or whatever. Let's watch like three movies in a night. <laughs> but imagine that. And it'd be like, what are we doing? And especially, especially movies that are not of their time. So... Oh, and movies at normal speed. Like, oh. I'm not sure if you've been to YouTube and someone's played with your settings and it's back to one time speed. It's like, oh my God, I need this Kobe Bryant documentary to be at at least 1.75 speed in order for me to understand what's going on. So this is a really important thing I'm going to say and stand by. Mm. 80s slasher films are some of the most boring films in the world. Like, they're all... 
exactly the same. <laughs> Post Halloween and Friday the 13th, it's like filmmakers were like, oh, there's a template. It's there. <laughs> They've done it. They've done we it figured all. it out. Yeah, we'll just do that. We'll do one of them. And they're near impossible to watch. And there's so many that I've sort of started watching, stopped watching. Often I don't cover them because they're so problematic. Like there's just so much sexual assault in them. Like just, just so much that it's just like, it, it really was an 80s trope that's really gross. But what, like I found a film today and I'm going to cover it even though it's 76 minutes long. <laughs> even though films are boring. <laughs> oh, it's, it, this was maybe the longest 76 minutes of my life. My God, I was like, what is, go- like, why, did, like who did this? But anyway, the reason why I want to cover this is because once I started looking into this, because I think it's in the same way that mm. I'm not a cricket fan, but you are. And so mm. I'm sure there are matches or venues or commentators who hold a particular cultural influence where if I'm like Old Trafford, you're like, ah, hmm. Classic, yeah, that's... yes. Shag Old Trafford, that's actually a good example. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> and it has some like cultural weight to you, mm. right? So it, this is one of those films where I'd heard its name before. And so I looked it up. And once I studied it, I had to go back and watch it again because when I watched it, it was like... Oh, that's torture. You watched a, you no. watched a movie twice. <laughs> I would never watch a movie twice. <laughs> Unless it's Goodwill Hunting, I would never watch a movie twice. Imagine if I was like, Shaq, come round and let's watch Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> that actually would be heaven and I would be like, sick, let's do it. Let's get some heaps normals. <laughs> It'll be great. But we'd talk through it, wouldn't we? would be like, oh, here comes my favourite yeah. bit. I'd be like, here comes the next emotional bit. Here's another emotional bit. Here's another good emotional bit. So anyway, so so no, so I watched this mm. film. It it's scant, like it really, on first watch, and also mm. keep in mind that I wasn't watching it as the filmmakers intended. So I was doing work on one computer. I had it open on a second computer, and then I was glancing at it every now and then. So <laughs> maybe that's not how the filmmakers intended it to be watched. Mm. But it was an excruciatingly long 76 minutes. And then I was like, look, I know this film has some sort of cultural weight in the horror movie, you know, scene. So I'm gonna look into it. Okay. Insane. Once I realized it, I then went back to certain beats of it and it had actually changed upon second viewing. There were things that I didn't pick up on. It was actually like a subtle satire and a satire made in 1982 of the misogyny of the slasher genre. It's Ugh. kind of... No, but it's it's worth talking about. But does the satire mean we're just going to do an extreme version of it so you can see how bad it is? Well, well, mm. well. Let's let's see. Okay, let's see. So today mm. we're doing a seventy-six minute. <laughs> That's <laughs> a really good length, in fairness. <laughs> That's a great length. A seventy-six minute slasher from nineteen eighty-two, called the Slumber Party Massacre. The basketball team is planning a party, a slumber party, to bare their souls. No, I think your tits are getting bigger. All the girls are coming, except Mary and Linda. And they won't be missed. The party begins at 8 o'clock. It's a slumber party for old time's sake. Love it too. Do you think I'm getting better? (laughs) But be on the lookout. Or an uninvited guest. Please, please. 
when the pizza arrives, things really start jumping. Some people may have to leave early. But others will hang around and hang around. Pizza? Peach, is this trailer still going? Oh, fuck, this trailer is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've saw like a thousand deaths. And, you know, like, I am a cisgendered heterosexual um, man, and there are other exciting things in there. And despite the fact I watched a minute and ten seconds of that trailer, that was the most boring experience of my life. Uh, and I presume they're the highlights of the film. Oh, God. That sucked all the energy from me. <laughs> and this beer's not giving me a buzz <laughs> to get me through it. <laughs> so I love how when we were growing up, the idea of going to university to do any sort of arts or humanity degree was looked down upon because it was like, how is that going to get you a real job? Whereas mm. now we live in a time when everyone's a creator and you mm. have to be able to analyse every text because everything's kind of false and people created, right? So yep. it's funny how now these degrees that we had that weren't valued then are valued now. Peach, you did a humanities degree. So mm. I'm going to ask you, because you sort of raised it before, mm. can you do a satire of, I guess in this case, a misogynistic genre, but still include elements of that genre as the film? I think the answer must be yes. And that the nature of the satire is the heightening and I'm sure there are huge numbers of examples of this, none of which spring to mind, of like a, look how extreme we're making the bad thing. Obviously, we're trying to illustrate how bad it is by making it extreme and pointing out the awful things in it. And I accept the premise of the question, which is, doesn't that mean you're just contributing to the problem? <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I think is super fair. And, and you know, you think of defenses of brown face and stuff like that of people being like oh i'm trying to draw attention to the way <laughs> people do attention. racist stuff and it's like well and and i i really agree with the premise of the question that's like look you're still doing it mm. you know and and with things you know like the violence and crime in in rap music for me is an interesting example of, you know, songs you listen to with your children and they're like, oh, like this person kills something and you're like, oh, nah, nah. And it's like, oh, so there's lying and making it up and you're like, oh, nah, you know, that probably... <laughs> you know, and you have to dance this bizarre line mm. of trying to say to you, your children that, yeah, yeah, it's awesome and it's true, but oh, it's all made up and it's a lie. You know what? Going back to how we started this year, it's all about nuance. Mm. There's, yep. no, there's no binaries. Everything falls in some sort of shade of grey. Yep. The author is dead. Roland Barthes. I can't believe this is a Roland Barthes podcast. Post-structuralism and horror films. So this film is, I think, is worth your time. And now that I've, I've read a couple of essays, and when I say essays, I mean internet mm. essays. So that's 500 words with lots of pictures. In fairness, I feel like I've watched it twice having watched <laughs> the one-minute trailer. So. Imagine 76 <laughs> minutes of that. Oh, God. Oh, oh, and because it's like shot in the 80s, lots of the shots go for heaps longer than they need to. It's like, let's spend two minutes watching them play basketball. Like, I, like, I already know. I already know that <laughs> from the trailer. All right, so here's what this film has going for it and why, upon re-evaluation, I'm actually pretty into it. 
So first of all, it was written by a feminist writer, Rita Mae Brown. While this slasher, you know, in 1982, while the slasher genre was huge, mm. uh, this is also three years before the Bechdel test, but this film mm. passes the Bechdel test. So here's the thing. Like, nice. there's lots of female characters in this film and they talk about a lot of stuff that doesn't include boys, which I think mm. is, again, for a slasher film at the time, yep. is crazy. And you don't even notice that when you're watching it, especially by today's standards. Well, because it's so male gazy, though. Like, uh, uh, well, yeah, okay. well, so this is where it gets a little bit problematic. But mm. I, I think it is interesting that they make a point to have all those male gazy moments. So the film starts with a teenager, although it's an 80s film teenager, so she looks like she's like 43. Like 75 years yeah, old. Yeah, like they're so old. But it starts with our main character, Trish, getting changed in front of the mirror and we spend about 30 seconds uh, looking at her boobs. When I watched it the first time, it, it was like, okay, this is another fucking 80s slasher. Like, they, they, mm. all, they are all like this. There's a lot of lingering shots on female bodies. Mm. Now, of, you know, of the essays I've read about this film, and obviously, you know, these are people who know more about this film than I do and more about mm. film history than I do. The idea is the whole way through this film, we're supposed to be seeing how the male gaze and how, you know, voyeurism on young women's bodies affect them. So that, like, yeah, okay. and there's probably, and, and God, I sound like a teenager. Like, you mm. remember when you're a teenager and you can memorize in a film where the nudity is? And you're like, yeah, okay. And maybe about uh, 16 minutes, yeah. there is a moment. Yeah. So, so there, there's a lot of nudity in this film. But each moment of that, to your point, is a very heightened, very voyeuristic y. You know, the camera is very leering or it's teenage boys peeking through the window or whatever, right? But there is a lot of nudity in this film. Yeah. It, it, mm, yeah, okay. We're showing it to show it's bad. Like I feel is a, it's a complex line to walk when you're still doing it. Well, not showing it to show it's bad, but showing it to show the vulnerability of the characters, I guess, yeah, which, okay. which, which I think is like an interesting yeah, okay. bit of nuance. Mm. Another bit which I think is really cool is that this was made in 1982. I think sometimes, especially with millennials, the worst generation of all time, we're like, we invented woke horror. Jordan Peele came along <laughs> and was like, imagine if a horror movie could have a message. And it's like, we've been, we've been doing it for a little while. Relax, champ. Relax, champ. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally this mm. and this is the thing because the whole way through the film mm. i i was like wow this this bad guy isn't scary at all but it's kind of the point they made the bad guy a real every man his name is russ thorne the bad guy's name is russ thorne i'm going to show you a picture of him and i'm going to put it in the chat now before yep. you look at him as soon as i saw this character the first thing that popped him up to my head and it stayed with me is like, mm. what if the Hamburglar was a real person? <laughs> <laughs> so click on that image and this is the bad guy in the Slumber Party Massacre. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Shag. <laughs> I must say, the, like, the outfit is sick. Den denim up top, denim down low. Bright red t-shirt with, like, bright blue denim. Is he meant to be the same age as his victims? Because he's got a weird, like... A violent widow's peak of baldness going on as well. So there's, there's also a... Like, he's an escape mental patient. That's the backstory he gets. Which I guess is probably, like, a bit of a... Like, maybe it's not. Maybe it is. I don't know. That's the other mm. thing about making a satire. The whole time you're like, maybe it's all satire. And if there's yeah. ever a problem, it's, like, satire. That, that that was Rob Gascoigne's line about wild things. Rob, previous guest on this podcast, I think, about mm. the Nev Campbell film of the mid to late 90s, I think. It yeah. was a satire. I was like, okay, well... 
if no one gets that it's a satire, <laughs> is it still a satire? Is it still a satire? And I feel I suspect that's an open question with this film. Written by a feminist writer, directed by a woman, it was her first film. Uh, it was originally meant to be a parody, but they workshopped the script to be more of a straight film. So for that reason, mm. there is a bit of humor in this, but it's often pretty unintentional. Despite that, you know, a feminist slash a satire, it was pretty successful. I should just correct the record to say that uh, it might have been me who said it was a parody and Rob Gask who argued with me, but I remember Rob and I had a running argument in the mid-90s as to whether that film was a satire or not. So I should just send... <laughs> I should just make sure that's on the record as, as that I might have ended up on the wrong side of that. Yeah, watch out. You don't want to get that wrong pitch. Yeah, man. It's the, the two best lawyers have ever appeared on Spooko. So... Mm. Should we do this film? Should we do the yeah. Salt Party Massacre? Yeah. All right. Now, as a 76-minute uh, long film and as a slasher from the 80s, even mm. though it's a satire, it's still a slasher, this might be the shortest Wikipedia entry ever. It's two paragraphs. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so. Read it double speed, Chad. Just, <laughs> just, just for me. <laughs> so in Venice, Los Angeles, Trish Devereaux, so she's our hero, mm. She's yep. supposed to be an 18-year-old high school senior, but again, every woman in this film looks like they're the same age, definitely looks sort of like late 20s to mid-30s. Yep. In fact, everyone looks the same in the 80s, like every single character. <laughs> like, it's really hard to tell because of the fashions. Everybody's this weird age somewhere between 25 and 48. Like, it's impossible to tell. Yeah, okay. So... Trish Devereaux decides to throw a slumber party while her parents are away. Their neighbor, Mr. David Content, is given the job of checking on the girls. So the film starts with her awakening and getting dressed shortly before going to school. Like I said before, we spend like 30 seconds watching her get dressed, watching her nude in the mirror before going to school. Meanwhile, Russ Thorne, our our antagonist, so he's an escaped mass murderer who is uh, escaped from a mental institution, mm. kills a telephone repair woman and steals her van. Now, this was also pointed out to be a bit of a moment, the fact that the repair woman was a, was a woman. Okay. I, I, I don't know where that fits in. Again, the 80s was a long time ago, but uh, it, it, both essays pointed out to the fact that it was an interesting choice to make both, you know, the, the first victim and, you know, the, the, the identity that he was assuming, which is because he steals her van, was a mm. woman. Okay. So Trish meets up with her friends Kim, Jackie, and Diane. She invites the new girl, Valerie, to the party, but she declines the offer. After school, one of their classmates, Linda, goes back into the school. Okay, so what this has missed is the fact that, which I think is really interesting, mm. is they're all part of a basketball team and we actually watch them talk about basketball and play basketball for like two minutes, which is both incredibly boring because it's shot because <laughs> no one in the 80s knew how to shoot sport. But it's also really interesting to value, you know, women's sport and as, as an essential part of the narrative. That's very ahead of its time, in yeah. fact. So, Shag, as you and I are both cricket fans, as you'll probably know, Cricket Australia has cancelled the first test that Australia was ever going to host against Afghanistan later in November because Afghanistan's withdrawn support for its women's team. And Cricket Australia's like, mm, fuck off. Like, if you're not going to support women's sport, we're not going to support you coming on tour here. So there's a degree of it being ahead of its time. Okay, that's good fun. 
Now, of course, after the basketball game, they all go into the showers for like two minutes and then mm. we just hang talk, out. And talk more basketball, yeah. <laughs> but that, that's when they talk about this party they're going to have and they try to invite Valerie, but Valerie doesn't want to come. The strange thing about these male gazy situations is I don't know any demographic of people who are more body conscious than teenagers. Like, I can't imagine a group of teenagers being like, no, let's talk about your body. And then, no, let's talk about yours. Let's talk about mine. I just like, there's just no conversation that is less likely to happen. It My me. strategy in high school in the change rooms was mm. like in and out as quickly as possible. Mm. And no one can see my penis. Yeah. No one is like that. Like, that would have been the end of me. Oh, for me, it was a lack of chest hair that I was always like, Oof, <laughs> this is really tough. <laughs> that, I mean, that's the other thing about like, and we went to an all boys school mm. and in the change rooms in an all boys mm. school during puberty is when you really start to fucking hate yourself. It's yeah. just like, why do they, why have they got all this stuff and I'm still like, what's going on here? Anyway, God, that's a whole other, that is a whole other thing. Mm. But I, I do think it supports my point is that you wouldn't have that discussion. You wouldn't be like, oh, Blogsy, I see you've got more chest hair than me. <laughs> What's going on with your pubic hair? What's going on there? Anyway, so, all right. So, so they do this, they leave. Mm. After school, one of the classmates, Linda, goes back into the school to retrieve a book but gets locked inside. She is attacked and presumably killed by Russ, who is now armoured with a pretty huge metaphor, a drill with a really long bit. Yeah, okay, so we've got a nice phallic weapon. Yeah, yeah this okay. is supposed to be the point, right? Like, he is killing them with a very phallic... So he's a regular, boring, everyday... Go- like, his name is Russ, for fuck's sake. Mm. And he's killing them with a metaphor. For the male he would love. He would love the platform, Russ. He'd be like, <laughs> yeah. He'd be into I get that. It. He'd, be, he'd, be, he'd be saying, I get it the whole time. So as the party begins that night, the mm. girls bring in all their contraband. So they found some marijuana, they found some alcohol. Still blows me away that in the States you can't drink till you're 21. Insane. Yeah, ridiculous. Uh, while Valerie babysits her young... So so Valerie, the girl who didn't want to come, is across the road babysitting her younger sister who also looks like she's 42 years old. <laughs> nice. Two boys from school, Jeff and Neil, arrive and spy on the girls while they change and talk about each other's bodies. Russ kills Mr. Contan. Uh, at this point, Russ is around and he's killing people. Mm. Russ kills Mr. Contan, who's the you know the male chaperone who was supposed to look over them with his power drill. Mm. Uh, Diane asks Trish permission to go with her boyfriend and goes to his car to find him decapitated and is murdered as well. Okay. I don't know how you decapitate someone with a drill. It's not a very good oh, weapon. Oh, yeah. But Ugh. also, yeah, like, right. I don't think you'd be able to... Do- like, you'd have to do many different drill moments. Oh, yeah. Because, like, drilling... Because <laughs> it's not extremely sharp, a big no. drill like that. Like It's, it's not a precise if... art. It's a precise machine. And you have to machine. really push it hard onto someone. Oh, yeah, you're right. But Ugh. also it'd be a really easy thing to defend yourself from, I reckon. Well, yeah, because if you just bat it away with <laughs> yeah. one hand, like, you get a slice on your arm. But it's yeah. extremely heavy. Yeah. So if I'm trying to push it at you... And you saw Russ. He's the hamburglar. He's not a big guy. <laughs> The two peeping toms could probably take him. Like, I expect. Like, yeah, right. Anyway, look, we're halfway through the film. Okay, the girls order pizza, and while on the phone with their coach, Rachel, who also looks exactly the same age as them, the girls answer the door, and Mm. Rachel hears them screaming, and she's like, what the fuck? Because they've answered the door, and the pizza delivery guy arrives, and both of his eyes have been drilled out. So... It's interesting that the grossest moment in the film happens to a male victim and not a female victim. Yep. 
And they clearly spent a lot of money, a lot of their $220,000 budget on the effects of this dude with his eyes drilled out. Because we honestly cut back to him so many times. Like, this isn't the first time we... It's all like, whoa, what a gross image. We'll never see it again. We see it constantly throughout the film. It's like, there he is again. So his eyes are still drilled out. Yep, there they are. So the teens freak out. They arm themselves with knives as Jeff and Neil run for help, but both boys are killed. Okay, sick. Russ gains entry to the house and murders Jackie. Trish and Kim barricade themselves in Trish's bedroom, but Russ enters through a window and kills Kim as Trish flees. You kind of don't need to know any of Trish is the main one. The rest yeah. of them are just... I feel like a drill would actually be handy against a barricaded door. Like, I think that's actually... <laughs> <laughs> that's probably where it would be useful. <laughs> but he said he went through the window. Yeah, he said he goes through the window. <laughs> okay. Valerie and Courtney, hearing screaming, enter mm. the house. They can't find anyone there. And then there's a bit of a slapstick moment where Courtney, Valerie's little sister, is like, but can we steal a beer from their fridge at least? And Valerie's like, no. And she keeps opening the fridge where one of the bodies has been kept. Yeah, we saw this in the trailer. And then the closing logo. it and then opening it again. But then eventually they open it and the dead body falls out. And but why does Russ care? Why is Russ like, aha, now I'll put the dead body in the fridge? It makes no sense, right? Yeah, okay. Um, and then they decide to hide from Russ. Russ, meanwhile, comes in and finds one of the dead bodies. I think it is the pizza guy with the eyes, because then we see the yep. eyes again. Because they <laughs> nice. covered him up with a blanket. They're like, what do we do with this dead body? Let's cover yeah. it up with a blanket. He moves the body, and then he hides under the blanket. Oh, nice. And Russ is like, well, these eyes look amazing. I did a great job, <laughs> a great job on these. So Coach Jenna, having grown concerned over the phone call earlier, arrives and is confronted by Russ. They have a fight. She grabs the fireplace poker, which I think would be a better weapon than a drill. Yeah, than a drill, yeah. But anyway, she's bested by Russ, who disembowels her with the drill. Again, I don't think it could do that. I don't think drills are blades. I don't think you could just slice it across someone's chest. I, 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 can't, I can't but agree. I cannot but agree. It'd be uncomfortable, sure. It, yeah, would, it would not, like, I wouldn't be like, yes, let's do this. <laughs> but, it, like, it wouldn't disappear. But anyway, that happens. Mm. So Valerie decides to go downstairs and find a, a weapon to confront Russ with. She initially tries to get a powered, like, handsaw, which would be a great weapon, but obviously it's got a cable, and the cable runs out before she can get out of the basement. Mm. So then she looks around and she finds a machete, which... Again, with the um, with the essays about this film, it's seen as another classic phallic instrument. Yep. And the fact that she's now turning the tables with it is big. So she goes up, chases Rush with the machete. The first thing she chases does... Chases Rush. Rush is like, ooh, put it down. Well, yeah, again, he's the Hamburglar, right? Okay. First of all, chops half of the drill bit off with the machete. Okay. So, so chops half the drill bit off yes. with the machete. So there's a, you know, a sort of symbolic emasculation there. Yeah, okay. Uh, then she chops his hand off that's holding the drill. Yeah, okay. Agency. Yep, all right. Yep. Then they have a bit of a fight, but she eventually stabs him through the stomach with the machete killing him. Yeah. So our survivors, our final girls, Valerie and Trish, break down in tears as Courtney, the younger, the younger sister who Valerie was looking after that night, looks on in shock. And because no slasher film knew how to end in the 80s, including satires of them, as soon as the killer's dead, it's like roll credits. Oh, really? It's like the kills yeah. <laughs> There's like a hint of sirens in the background, but it's just like roll credits. 76 minutes is done. A very long 76 minutes. 
But now that you know, and now that I've told you that with mm. that, with the context, and considering that this was made almost 40 years ago, Peach, what mm. did you think about the Slumber Party Massacre? I thought that um, it was a relic of history that is interesting culturally but not interesting artistically. Like, as I understand, this is about the same year The Thing yeah. came out. Yeah. Halloween was already out by now. Like, there were actual good horror films around. So it wasn't like, it's like, oh, it's a horror film, it has to be shit. It was intending to make a statement that I think was made, at least in part, and certainly looking through the lens of someone in 1982, um, you would say that that statement was more or less effectively made. But I guess, is it an exciting piece of art? The answer's no. Is it a valuable cultural relic? Maybe trending to know, but with a hint of maybe in there. In some ways, if only it were a piece of street art that had been painted over uh, six months after it had been put up. Movies are boring. Uh, This was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's... What's up?